open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Mark Wong Tower, Mark Wong Tower, this is Albatross 1 3, requesting permission to land. Over. I don't need a computer to tell me how to land a damn airplane. Six. Heads up display, check. Five. Lasers, check. Four. Particle beam, check. Three. Photon bolts, check. Two. Chair control, check. One. Let's do it. Broadcasting from a secret underground location somewhere in Moss Eisley, this is the Docking Bay 77 Podcast. Make yourself comfortable. The show is about to start. Hello and welcome to the Docking Bay 77 Podcast. I am your web-slinging, adamantium-laced host, Dayton Johnson. I am super excited. This episode, I have two brand new people joining me. My first guest is a published fantasy author, an expert on 80s rap, comic book nerd, and a fan of, of Major League Soccer. Please welcome David Wright. Hello, David. Hello. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to uh, be on your show. Very cool. Now, my other guest has the coolest name of anybody that's been on so far. Uh, he also is a published author, sports fan, comic book nerd. Please welcome Van Allen Plexico. Hello. Man, that that definitely summed David up as concisely as anything I've ever heard. I've known <laughs> I've known him for twenty five years or whatever, thirty years. And I'm like, yeah, that's David. Hey, I, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Of course, of course. Um, so before we get into the meat and potatoes of this, uh, David, uh, where can people find? You? I know you have some books, uh, some fantasy books. Where can people find those? At GalahadsDoom.com. So Galahad's Doom is the name of my series. It's a it's a sword and sorcery, epic medieval fantasy adventure. It does have a strong Christian theme. Um, and I would say that you don't have to be a believer to enjoy it. If you enjoy Lord of the Rings, or I would say Dragonlance is probably a more direct, is more of a flavor of Dragonlance than it is Tolkien. Okay, but, cool. Uh, it's, it's that kind of fantasy adventure. Um, the first two books are out. The third one has been written. I hope I know we're in August now. I hope that um, I'll have it out very soon in time for the holidays season. I just got it's just a matter of the post production and process of getting it out there. But um, the books are available on Amazon. The best way to find them is to go to the website. So it's okay. galahadsdoom.com. Any fan of Tolkien, Narnia, Dragonlance, Dungeons and Dragons, they're going to love it. Uh, I'm of the age where I was in my prime D&D playing days in the early 80s when the media uh, scare was at its height <laughs> about how it was clearly some satanic occult danger to everybody's lives. And um, and I knew that was ridiculous. And so uh, I had made it a lifelong goal way back then that I would find a way to prove that fantasy was not inherently automatically evil, that there was room for quote unquote good stories. And, you know, it's awesome. It's exciting. Everybody check it out. Yeah, I still have my, uh, my dice from my basic Dungeons & Dragons starter set to this day. I've had them for over 40 years. So I remember that scare as well. <laughs> All right, Van, uh, why don't you tell us, uh, I, know you have, I know you have a podcast. And uh, tell us about that and also uh, where we can get your books, because I've actually found some of them on Audible. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I would like to thank David for spoiling season four of Stranger Things. <laughs> oh, <laughs> dude. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have not watched no, that. That's show. Right. Don't I haven't watched it either. So please, <laughs> please. Uh, no, no. 
Um, yeah, I have uh, the I have a, a network, a podcast, the White Rocket Entertainment Network. So we have the uh, we have a football show that I'm sure nobody here cares about on Auburn football, <laughs> but we have the White Rocket podcast, which covers basically all pop culture movies, books, and uh, we have uh, we're doing all of the Avengers, where I've been reading the Avengers from number one going forward and discussing every issue with different guests. Oh wow! Uh, on YouTube and on White Rocket. On the White Rocket podcast, and I have the White Rocket Babylon Five review podcast, where Andy Fix and I go through and review every episode of Babylon Five. Where we we just passed the halfway point of the entire series uh, about two weeks ago, and it's crazy to think that. And then uh, <laughs> there's the on Her Majesty's Secret podcast, the big James Bond show that Alan J. Porter and Jared Albrick and I and and Delvin Williams and several other people do, and we. Um, Raymond Benson is on there occasionally and others, and we talk about James Bond a lot. So that's the podcast thing. On the wow. other side of publishing, um, I've, I've written – I've got 19 uh, novels in, in print, but I'm currently working on three books. Let me tell you right quick what I'm doing right now. I just finished a massive history of the last 45 years of Auburn basketball. That'll be out <laughs> like in a month. I just finished editing and compiling a massive sword and sorcery anthology that David is in. Very cool. Gideon Kane, Demon Hunter, revised and expanded edition. It's illustrated. It's 400 pages. It's humongous. And I'm halfway through writing uh, Validus V, which is a novel about giant robots and giant Japanese monsters. <laughs> so I keep pretty busy. Yeah, I I can say sounds like it. <laughs> if I can say something about Gideon Kane, it is really cool. The character is awesome. Anybody who's a fan of Solomon Kane is going to love Gideon Kane. Yeah. It's set in the 1690s. It's basically it's a Viging Puritan. Um, we uh, it's a character based anthology. We worked off a character Bible that we developed. Kurt Busick was involved in the creation of the character. Mm. And uh, this, I haven't seen all the new stories that are coming out in this revised edition, but I can say this with all modesty because because there's so many other authors involved. It's awesome. It's the stories are so good. The character is just cool, cool premise. If you like Solomon Kane, like sword and sorcery and a little bit of gunpowder, uh, this is your uh, this is your show. This is your book. Man, I feel like such a slacker. All I do is deliver mail. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, let's move on to the topic. Um, I invited these guys here because, as I said, they're both comic book nerds. And we are going to discuss a couple of comic book movies. We are discussing Spider-Man 2 from 2004 and X2 X-Men United from 2003. Um, I put these two together because uh, the general consensus is that these are the two best of their respective trilogies. So I thought it'd be fun to compare and contrast these, um, you know, because why not? I can, it's my podcast. So uh, we're gonna talk about Spider-Man 2 first. No matter what I do. Do you love me or not? No matter how hard I try. Spider-Man killed my father. If you knew who he was, would you tell me? The ones I love. I'm getting married. Will always be the ones who pay. I'm Spider-Man no more. There was something I thought I had to do. I don't have to. I like seeing it in my theater. You take Spider-Man's pictures. Where is he? There's a hero in all of us. Even though sometimes we have to give up the thing we want the most. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. Check it out. The truth. The story continues June 30th. Uh, some facts about the movie. 
it was released June 30th, 2004, directed by Sam Raimi, uh, written by Alvin Sargent, who won the Oscar for Julia in 1977 and the Oscar for Ordinary People in 1980. He also wrote Paper Moon, White Palace, and What About Bob? That's an unusual combination. Uh, He also uh, helped write uh, Spider-Man 3. Oh, well. And uh, The Amazing Spider-Man starring uh, Andrew Garfield. Music by the wonderful Danny Elfman, uh, of course, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, and Alfred Molina. On an estimated budget it, of $200 million, it did make $789 million at the box office, which is pretty awesome. All right, so let's talk about some likes. Uh, David, give me something you like about the movie. What works for you? Well, I would say this. I would say the best thing about that movie is that they really captured the Stanley Steve Ditko vibe that that type of story you know where you've got a personal story with Peter Parker who's down on his luck and he's fighting uh, a scientist who had a bad day one day and turned into a supervillain <laughs> and uh, just against the backdrop of a bunch of skyscrapers. I mean, it's just classic Spider-Man imagery from that from that original era and. Um, Anybody who's a fan of Spider-Man is going to find everything they want in a Spider-Man story. It's going to be done right here. So um, I would say the best thing they did was just capture that vibe. Okay. All right. What about you, Van? Um, I can name you my three main ones. I have quite a list. but I <laughs> All right. I think the main ones, uh, this is one of the best villains in superhero movies. I All think right. that they really did him – They. They both in terms of the actor, the story, the effects, the battles, everything. Uh, I think that the battle at the bank and the battle with the train are two of the best superhero action scenes ever done, which is remarkable considering they were done this this long ago, what, 18 right. years ago. Yeah. And it holds up. I mean, it more than holds up to anything being done now, at least, uh, if not better. And then um, third, I think it's such a great Sam Raimi movie. It's funny because as I was watching it this time, I was looking for Sam Raimi in this movie. Yes. And about 80% of the movie, he he keeps himself in check. Right. There's about 20% of the movie that you could be watching Army of Darkness or The Evil Dead. Yes. The, the scene where they're in the operating room. Yes, that's one of mine. And the arms wake up. Sam Raimi just says, I'm going to go back to like 1999 or whatever. And it is, I was expecting, um, you know, what's his name? The, the, the usher. Bruce Campbell. <laughs> yep. Bruce Campbell to show up. Cause it's got everything else, right? right? The way the camera zooms around and people pop up and pop down. It was just totally Sam Raimi. So, and it, it made me think, I have often said, that one of the things that makes the Lord of the Rings movies better than they could be, right? In and in there's, there's another world where Chris Columbus directed the Lord of the Rings movies, <laughs> and they are flat, right? right. Like the first Harry Potter movie. There, but in our world, Peter Jackson, a kooky New Zealand horror director, directed them, and you get, you get the jalapenos and the chili pepper in the Lord of the Rings. You know what right. I mean? Oh, absolutely. Having Sam Raimi do this was the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings of Spider-Man because you get that pepper that you wouldn't get. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that you wouldn't get with just a run-of-the-mill, you know, action director. So that's what I like best about it. 
Yeah. And actually uh, to both your points, um, the story, that's one of my highlights. I love how uh, Peter is just struggling with figuring out who he is. So people, especially at that age, you know, you're told, oh, you have to finish school. You have to go to college. You have to get a job, all this sort of stuff. And he's balancing, you know, a personal life versus being a superhero where most of us are just balancing a personal life and a job. So um, I, I really adore that in his existential crisis um, of just not knowing who he is. And then his body rejects his powers because he's lost sight of who he is. So I, I love that. So I agree. Um, and you're right. It's, it's very, very much uh, well done as far as you know, a callback to classic Spider-Man books. And um, yes, exactly. There's a couple of scenes in this movie where it's, it's all Sam Raimi. It's like, um, it's like even in the the most recent one, uh, the Multiverse is Madness. Oh, yeah. uh, there's you know with Bruce Campbell, it's a callback to Evil Dead, him beating himself up. I'm like, I was the only one in the theater actually laughing at that joke the way you should laugh at it because I'm like, right. how do you people not get this? So absolutely agree, absolutely agree. Um, the operating room scene, yeah, I I wish he would have put Bruce Campbell in there. That would have been so much better. You know, mm-hmm. it would have been so much better. So. Uh, I want to do. I want to put this a little bit in context. You know, this is several years prior to the beginning of the MCU. Right. Before, before any of us knew that such a thing would ever happen, that we would be blessed in such a way. <laughs> right. And uh, so this was still not only was this early in like superhero, you know, modern superhero era, which you could say started with either Blade or the first X Men movie, but um, it was uh, it was a culmination. I mean, both of these movies are at the top of everybody's list of oh yeah superhero best superhero movie ever, you know, pre-MCU. And just to be, it was still new, this idea that we're living in a world that they can come out with a big budget Hollywood movie with the proper effects, that the production value is actually cool. I mean, you know, how many years do we have terrible superhero (laughs) movies? Or or just, we didn't get any because they couldn't do them. They couldn't give them justice. So just to see Spider-Man treated with high production value, um, you know, the, uh, of course, everybody knows probably that James Cameron was trying to do a Spider-Man movie oh, yeah. in the late 80s and early 90s. And, um, you know, James Cameron's awesome. I hadn't, you know, he's one of my favorite. He's one of the all-time best. But what kind of Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man movie could we have gotten back then? It wouldn't have, it couldn't have been as good. So, no. so just to be able to walk into a theater and, you know, I, I, we need to remember that right now we're a little jaded. You know, we expect excellence right. in these kind of movies. But back then, this was still like it was mind blowing how just how well made of a movie we were getting with these characters. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's uh, it, they had to actually take the the product seriously. That's you know why so many of them failed prior to this, and that's why like movies like the GI Joe movies failed because they didn't take it seriously. Right. You know, you have to, just because it's based on a cartoon or a comic book or whatever, you have to take it seriously and bring a good product. And people will flock to it. And, and the, with this making almost 800 million, and of course now the MCU, you know, the MCU made comic books accessible to people that wouldn't have cared before. You know what I mean? So uh, you take it seriously, get a good product, and everybody's going to go see it. So my daughter yeah. doesn't read the comic books, but she loves the movies. You know what I mean? So hey, that's a win. Not just take it seriously, but don't be embarrassed by it. You know, right? It, don't try to change it up. Just embrace the comic bookness of it. It's actually cool. It's a proven cool concept. Right. You just, it's your job to bring it to the screen, you know, and finally in the 2000s, we started really getting that. Yeah. Although I do stink. I, excuse me. I do think it started with blade, but that's just my opinion. 
<laughs> it didn't quite make the numbers, but it was still a good, successful Marvel movie. Oh, lovely. Bef- yeah, before before we got Spider-Man. Who is Spider-Man? He's a criminal. That's who he is. A vigilante. A public menace. What's he doing on my front page? Mr. Jameson, this is page six problem. We have a page one problem. Shut up. We'll start with you, David. Um, in this particular movie, um, I know you mentioned how uh, how it has the feel of the old Spider-Man comics. Which character did they get the most right as far as comic book, like right off the page in this one? Well, I, uh, I you know, I thought about this and I would love to be able to say J.K. Simmons is J. Jonah James because <laughs> uh, he does a fantastic job with that character. Yes, he does. The highlight Absolutely. of the movie. Yes. But is he comic accurate? I don't know. I think he brought a little he brought J.K. Simmons to the table, you know, right. um, he's not played as much for laughs in the comics. So even though he's probably my favorite supporting character, I don't know if he wins the title of most comic accurate. And I'm going to actually give it to Aunt May. Awesome. I, for, for, for once in Spider-Man's cinematic uh, history here, we have an old lady <laughs> playing the part of Aunt May the way Stanley yeah. intended. <laughs> And, um, you know, I think, I th- again, I, going back to just capturing that classic Lee Ditko um, vibe and, and dynamic and kind of story engine of those early of those early issues. Um, she plays that part perfectly. And okay. um, she cares for Peter. She's struggling herself, but she keeps her struggles to herself. Right. She doesn't, she doesn't try to share them. And, you know, there's a scene in the movie where. Um, she's talking to Peter about how Spider-Man is just willing to like help people and everything. And they're in the backyard there, uh, their house in Queens. And the way she played that, there was a cleverness in her eyes that just, she, uh, she was playing it like she already knew Peter's secret. And even though it never became a story point in the movie, um, it just, to me, it was like, that's classic Aunt May. And I think she's, because, you know, Spider-Man's got organic web shooters, right? Yeah. Uh, so um, that so is that comic accurate? No, I don't. I mean, I think they did a good job representing a lot of these characters and all of them because the overall dynamic, I think they nailed. Okay. But but when it comes to an individual character for comic accuracy, I'm going to go with Aunt May. All right, that's an awesome awesome choice. How about you, Van? What do you think? I honestly didn't think that really any of the characters in either one of these movies was really accurate to the comics, but that's not surprising because they're their own things. And I think that they do a really good job of doing the thing the movie needs them to do because Doc Doc Ock is like one of the most irredeemably evil bad guys in the Marvel universe. And yet here he's a really nice guy who just has a chip blow out the back of his neck, allowing his tentacles to make him evil. And that's totally different. I mean, and, right. you know, I mean, I guess Jameson, J. Jonah Jameson, I would say this is, I think my favorite J. Jonah Jameson. I, I, I much rather see him screaming at Peter than trying to sell us farmer's insurance. Honestly, but I think Jonah probably is the closest because everybody else, I mean, Mary Jane's not really like Mary Jane and right. You know, it's not, I'm not complaining. It's not bad. I think that for the purposes of this movie, they're close enough that they're recognizable, and then they do that. They serve the story. So I don't have a complaint about it. But I don't think anybody's that accurate. But right. I do love Jonah. I do love Jonah in this movie. I think he's great in this movie. He's awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, they. I don't think they could have found a better person to play that part. So mm-hmm. seeing him pop up in the in the multiverse of madness was. Well, I mean, bringing him into those movies just was 
great. That was, I'm so glad they did that. All right. Um, I chose not to answer because I have not read enough of those comics of the Spider-Man comics too. Even. <laughs> and so I've only read a handful of them. I remember reading the uh, Todd McFarlane ones and liking them and then everybody hating me because I like them. I'm like, what's wrong with them? They're so good. There's too much webbing and he's too serious. I'm like, oh my God, whatever. <laughs> anyway, moving on, moving on. Um, so uh, let's talk favorite scenes. Uh, David, do you have a favorite scene? I'm going to go with the scene where it starts at the bank and okay. then uh, Doc Ock shows up and, and disrupts the day and ends up uh, taking, snatching up Aunt May and climbing up this, this skyscraper and the fight goes outside. That fight, that fight on the skyscraper, Spider-Man versus Doc Ock, I mean, that is ripped straight from the pages of the comic. Right. And, and it is glorious. You're getting on my nerves. I have a knack for that. Not anymore. And to, to be able to see it played out on the screen, have all that come to life, you know, I can nitpick the, the costume details and the web shooters and things, you know, where they changed it for the movie. But when you're in that wide shot and the action's flying around, it is so pure Spider-Man versus Doc Ock. I am in heaven. So that is, uh, that's, I think that's my favorite action sequence. And it's also my favorite overall scene. All right. Very cool. How about you, Van? What do you think? Oh yeah, there's no doubt that the 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 bank. I mean, David, can't you hear Stan Lee saying, uh, "Peter and Aunt May are at the bank getting a loan," and then Doc Ock shows up and blows the crap out of everybody? <laughs> that's just totally, you know. I mean, that's um, Kevin Smith would have written that, but um, yeah, no that that whole bank and up on the up on the tower and all, yeah, and and um, and the way that they found to do the arms that they are so effective in both CGI and practical. And yet you can't really tell when no. it's back and forth constantly. And you can't, you can't tell. I, and, I think, um, it, I think it's that cutting back and forth that keeps you right. from yeah. figuring it out, yeah. so to speak. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, yeah, that, I mean, that, I, that's got to be the best scene, right? It ha- I mean, the, the train is really cool too, but I think it, you've already seen it, you know, a lot of the fight at that point. It's just, oh, here goes again. Now, here's the question that, that, that both of those fights raised with me. Well, number one, Aunt May should have all kind of bruises and dislocated limbs <laughs> after being hung from a building and stuff. She, Hanging on by an umbrella. Than, yeah. She's in much better shape than we, than we knew. <laughs> what is it about Doc Ock that having those arms, suddenly he can be banged into brick walls and stuff and not get killed? I I mean, I understand that Peter's a little more resilient, can can fall from a mile up when his web shooters don't work and, and crash and not break his arms but or his ribs, but I just didn't understand how Doc Ock was that tough. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe those those needles are jabbing into his spine. They're, maybe they're stimulating his adrenaline and his endorphins, and he's just he's so doped up he 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 doesn't feel it until later. I'm just I- guessing. I always just assumed it was probably a little bit of that. And uh, I thought the arms were taking all the damage. I just figured they were like in the, in the way that was what was hitting the walls or whatever that's, but you know what, if I'm willing to accept that a guy's running around with, you know, eight limbs and a spider, then I can accept the fact that, you know, <laughs> he can take a few. Dr. Strange. Than me. Oh, Dr. Strange. <laughs> I already used that one. Dang. <laughs> I'm glad we got Doc Ock, right? You got to use yes. Green Goblin in the first movie, but it's time to get to that next tier of supervillain. Right. So uh, Doc Ock is the next classic. And of course, you know, we get hints of both uh, the lizard and uh, werewolf by night, right? Uh, kind of sprinkled in the movie. Right. Um, where uh, uh, Manwolf, Manwolf, Manwolf. Manwolf, I'm sorry. Yeah, Manwolf. Uh, John Jameson. 
the astronaut. Right. In, right. The, in the comics, he becomes Man Wolf. Yeah. So, um, so for the comic book nerds who are seeing these secondary characters kind of come in, you're thinking Easter eggs. You're thinking, oh, they're planting seeds for sequels. You know, it's kind of cool to see all that come together. So, you know, and I, Van, I know you feel the same way, but we grew up at a time where uh, the what superhero media we got. Uh, was so lame that it didn't even have super villains. Right? No, it was, exactly. They, they'd fight like street thugs or something. Dude, so, the gun at him and then throws the gun. Right. <laughs> every, so, you know, every superhero thing. Yeah. So at this point, <laughs> even though we've had Superman two and Batman eighty nine and all all the Batman movies, it still feels good to actually fight a super villain. Right. <laughs> but this time, you know, with even better uh, production value. So, so yay, Doc Ock. And by the way, I echo your sentiment on Alfred Molina is Doc Ock. I don't know who could have done, who could have done it better. It, yeah, I just wish, I wish they would have covered him up a little bit more. But. It, it, isn't it crazy to think that Doc Ock in this movie is the same guy that left Indy in the tomb at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Right? I just can't get past that. I just yeah. can't. It just blows my mind every time I see Alfred Molina. Yeah, he uh, he's one of those you just he pops up a lot. But yes, it's amazing the the career he's had. Absolutely. So, I'm going to pick a different scene. Um, I actually really enjoy the scene where Peter and MJ are having a little chat at the cafe. What's happening? Peter Parker. And the girlfriend. What do you want? I want you to find your friend, Spider-Man. Tell him to meet me at the West Side Tower at 3 o'clock. Well, I don't know where he is. Find him. Or I'll peel the flesh off her bones. If you lay one finger on her. You'll do that. Not only is it awesome when his spider sits kicks in and the car comes flying through. I just love how it's shot. I love the, uh, the idea, just the, t- uh, the tension in it, but the scene is super important for Peter because he's looking at MJ and he's lying to her. No, I don't love you. I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to protect you, but yet she still gets snagged. You know, he, she still gets kidnapped and it's that scene that, you know, convinces him. I have to be Spider-Man. I can't, you know, I can't let this happen. Even though I'm trying to lie and protect her, she's still going to get in trouble. So I have to, his resolve happens at this scene. So for me, it's a, it's a turning point for that character. So that's why I like it, um, both for the, just the shot of the car coming through the window and uh, how it changes the story. So that's my choice. Yeah. And I felt so bad for Peter, this movie. I mean, <laughs> nothing was going right for him at all. Hi. Hi. What's Hi. Can I spend it? Uh, I have a paycheck due this week. And You're a month late again. Again. I promise as soon as I... If promises were crackers, my daughter would be fat. <laughs> I'm really sorry, Mr. Dickovich. You know, all I got is this 20 for the rest of the week. <laughs> sorry doesn't pay the rent. And don't try to sneak past me. I have ears like a cat. And eyes like a rodent. We're coming to that. I Trust me, I've handled that in my notes. <laughs> all, all right. right. This is not. This is the section of my notes that are about two pages long that we're about to get to. So. Yeah, okay, all right. So well, this is gonna be awesome. All right. So you want to move on to dislikes? Is that what we're talking about? I'm not saying I want to. I'm just saying I'm prepared <laughs> if we do. All right. Well, since you're prepared, why don't we start with you? Why don't you give us some of your complaints? Boy. 
All right, I'll do the whole list. That's fine. We we have <laughs> gone back eventually and hit all of my likes pretty much. I'll, I I will say, let me just throw in a couple of, of things here before I get going. So the one thing we didn't hit so far that I had in my notes was that I really liked Peter's landlord's daughter, and I wish they had done something with her. Yeah, she seemed like she was just there. Yeah. Yeah, they kept setting her up to be this interesting character that clearly liked him and never got to do anything with it. I was pulling for her. I was pulling for her. Yeah, exactly. And then, then, you know, she just kind of is like, oh, hey, Pete, (laughs) thing catches on fire, door shuts. I'm like, that was funny, (laughs) but I wanted to know more. So that's not a complaint, though. That's just a I liked her and we didn't get more. All right. Um, my main problem with this movie is that I really don't like Peter Parker. Okay. <laughs> Supposed to, it kind of hurts your enjoyment of the movie. If the main character is somebody that you just look at and go, really? Because I want you gentlemen to understand that my favorite superhero, David is who? Iron Man. Thank you. Um, <laughs> he takes off the helmet, David. Who is he? He's Tony Stark. I want you to think about Tony Stark in Iron Man 2 testifying before Congress. Right. Just imagine his personality. Imagine how he's, what he's doing and all that. Let that soak through your brain for a minute. Right. Now look at Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker in the first 25 minutes of this movie, and I was wanting to slash my wrists. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He, Damn! He is just like... He just does. He just does this dull. I don't understand what's going on. Look, and it drives me up the wall. I'm like, you are the hero. Do something. Stop whining. He's the biggest whiner. He. I'm pulling my hair out. I honestly, like I said, there's parts of this movie that are wonderful and that stand up to this day to the best that's coming out right now. But there are parts of this movie that were a chore to watch this time because he is just unrelentingly dragging it down and we're supposed to have sympathy for his plight right but it, but it just makes me contemptuous that he never does anything he's got these powers he has these abilities he's super smart he has skills they do tom holland's peter parker so much better right he takes advantage of stuff poor toby mcguire's peter parker just is a victim 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 and squanders all these gifts. He squanders his scientific knowledge. He squanders his superpowers. He squanders the great friends he has. He just wallows in his own misery and never does anything to correct it. And it just, I, he has no self-respect, and I'm just not interested in that. Um, um, even when Mary Jane tries to engage with him, he's so timid there's a scene where she changes gears where she's trying to like engage with him and he's just like a wall and she's like, Oh, I'm seeing a man now. And when she says, I'm seeing a man, I'm like, as opposed to you, Peter, <laughs> I could hear that, you know, I'm seeing an actual man now. And he, and he should be like, well, I'm a man. Dang it. And instead he's like, that's nice companionship. And I'm just like, <laughs> Oh my God, Peter. What? So it just, Everything that I don't like about Spider-Man is is in the first 30 minutes of this of this movie and it drives me crazy. And again, it's it's not it doesn't have to be that way because I think Tom Holland's I don't remember uh Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man well enough to comment. It just kind of came and went. Right. But Tom Holland's is so much better to me. You get so much of more of a he's he's joyous. He's right. positive, he's happy, he's outgoing, he's energetic. You root for him, you like him and 
God, Toby, you just drag. You're just a cold fish. So, um, um, I, the only other negatives I mentioned, I did, I did, that was my big rant that I wanted to get out. And then, yeah, we, I wish we'd gotten man. It, David, you mentioned the two that we, the two villains were teased here, Lizard and, and Man Wolf, and we don't get either one of them in the next movie. I know. <laughs> right. That, that would have been perfect. That should have been where it went. But yeah. We get, we get what, three different villains? Yeah. In the next movie, and none of them are these two. So that's yeah. bizarre. And then last thing I want to complain about, I have nobody's even mentioned this yet. We get the hero loses his powers randomly trope. And that's so tired. I'm just like, that is the laziest story structure to go to. And you didn't have to, there's no reason why he had to have that happen in this movie. If you took that out of this movie, the movie is almost not any different. You'd lose like, three minutes of him crashing through the alley. I just, I didn't understand. I mean, I guess it's to highlight that it's like a physical ramification of his mental struggle, his emotional struggle, right. but you could take it out and it makes the movie better and you don't lose anything. So I was just very disappointed in uh, Ramey for, and the screenwriters for going such a, such a lazy, lazy trope as that. Well, so, there well, you so, go. There <laughs> okay. Well, if I could address that trope, I do not disagree with you. But I think in 2004, maybe it hadn't been so well-worn of a path as it is now. Um, right. But I do agree with you, and it annoys me. Like, I can name movies where the, the main hero is not the hero for the entire second act, right? It takes the third act for him to put the costume back on and get back in the fight. And, you know, it happens in the first Thor movie. I think it happens in Iron Man 2, and, and, it's, and it's like... So I love the first Thor movie because it starts out, he's like killing giants, right? He's It's like, he's already Thor. There's no origin story where he's slinging a hammer and giants are falling. Bodies are hitting the floor. But then as soon as all that cool stuff is over, he loses his powers. He's banished to Midgard. And it's just like, we got to wait till the third act before we see Thor again. So I agree with you on that. But I just think maybe in 2004, it wasn't as cliche as it seems now as we watch it. That's um, fair. I, I'm yeah. not sure, but that's a fair point. Um, the other thing, and I, it dovetails exactly with your frustration with Toby McGuire and how he played this role. I don't know if it's his choices in this role or if it's just him as an actor, but um, I agree with uh, the flatness you're talking about that he brings that, that he has in this role. But where I see it and where, where my dislike comes is I see approximately zero chemistry between him and Kirsten Dunst. Like, I don't believe it for a second. We're supposed to, like, be bought in. and We're supposed to be pulling for this relationship. And I, the, the, the two actors just, I don't feel any chemistry between them. I don't think they're clicking at all. And uh, it's, uh, it, to me, it, it is a big energy drain on the movie. Now, I, I, I don't want to sound too negative because I love the movie. <laughs> but I think that that's a... Uh, there's a void in the center of the movie. And I think it's that. Well, to, to, to about Toby, I think that's more of a Sam Raimi direction because I don't, I don't think uh, McGuire has the pull to tell Sam Raimi, no, I want to play it like this. So I'm thinking uh, that a lot of that falls on Raimi's shoulders more than Toby's, point. but, um, but yeah. And as far as their chemistry, I can see that. Uh, and that to the point, some people, some directors just don't do a good job uh, pushing the romance part um, 
we're not even going to get into episode two star you know attack of the clones um but it's some it's just one of those things that sometimes some directors just aren't good at that uh at that plot device or that telling that kind of story so i do i do see what you're saying though um now i actually thought that james franco i thought his performance was kind of uneven you know um he's a great actor but i just did i kind of felt like he was just showing up for this and that was one of my complaints um he's so much better than what we got in this movie and it's almost like he was it was a paycheck to him that's kind of how i felt you know every one of the scenes i don't know i just i didn't like his portrayal um and i know he's better than that that's bothered me yeah i think you're right i agree um and also we didn't get get enough of donna murphy as uh otto's wife that's a it's like they put her in on screen just so she can die there's like no other reason for her to be there and it's unfortunate because she's a wonderful actress and she's a beautiful woman. And I thought that would have been interest, more interesting um, if you got more of her and more of their relationship, which would also help drive uh, Otto's aggression uh, throughout the movie. So um, I thought that was another missed opportunity uh, that they that they had. So um, and you guys covered everything else. So I don't have anything else to say as far as complaints go. <laughs> well, this is not a complaint at all. This, this may be jumping back to something that I like, but I just thought of it. An interesting tidbit um, was the gag in this movie where he he tries to swing and he fails he slams into the wall and when he stands up he goes my back my back well i understand in real life toby mcguire had a back injury that yes uh, either happened on the set of sea biscuit or was really aggravated on sea biscuit and um and i don't know if they put it in this movie just strictly as a gag or if it was actually to kind of maybe cover for some of toby mcguire's own stiffness but clearly in uh no way home toby mcguire looks like he's got a bad back <laughs> and uh but but it was interesting for me to go back and watch spider-man 2 now and see that that's actually uh, there's actually a character connection there between the two movies so they actually actually ties in pretty well so i thought it was pretty neat yeah, yeah. I, I see that now that's cool i didn't even catch that before all right any uh any other things you want to say about this before we move on to our next movie said quite enough (laughs) do you you feel better now (laughs) all right uh let's move on to uh x2 x-men united doesn't it ever wake you in the middle of the night the feeling that someday they will pass that foolish law and come for you and your children take you all away does indeed Swell of pity for the poor soul who comes to that school looking for trouble. What's happened to you? Don't you remember? Sometimes anger can help you survive.
released on May 2nd, 2003, directed by Brian Singer, uh, written by uh, Michael Doherty, Dan Harris, and Dave Hader. Story was influenced by the Marvel comic storylines of Return to Weapon X and God Loves, Man Kills. Starring a massive ensemble cast, including Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen, Hugh Jackman, Alan Cumming, and Brian Cox. Estimated budget of $125 million, it would make $407 million at the box office. All right, so since we started with uh, David last time, Van, something you like about this one? Um, d- doesn't X-Men United sound like a soccer team that they would have at the X-Men camp? <laughs> <laughs> David would like that. Yes. All right, something I like. I've got, a, I've got quite a list here, but I'll give you a few highlights if you'd like. Um, Sounds good. I thought it it improved on the first movie in almost every way. Uh, agreed. Uh, yes. Which is good. Um, I liked teaming up the good guys and the bad guys against worse guys. That's always a that's a trope, but it's all it's always an effective one. It's not an annoying one, right? Um, I did like seeing Mystique and going, "Hey, that's number one from Star Trek: <laughs> Worlds." That was pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool. Famous, years so. earlier, yeah. Looking good there, Rebecca. Rebecca. Um, I thought that the the set pieces. The White House with Nightcrawler set piece, and then the attack on the mansion later, which will come to those two scenes. And I mean, the X-Men movies kind of have that reputation for taking one new character and giving them a tour de force set piece thing. Like, because Quicksilver does something very similar in a later, in a later movie. Right, right. right. You get the scene where it's like just him taking down a whole bunch of people. So, right. I like that they've kind of made that a tradition within the series. And this was like the first time, I guess, that they really do it. Um, I thought Brian Cox was great. He's such a good villain. It was kind of funny to see him as like this military villain here after I've been watching uh, Succession for the last two or three seasons. <laughs> Seeing him playing basically Rupert Murdoch and all of a sudden he's back to being a, a, a superhero villain, you know, super <laughs> villain type guy. That was pretty cool. And then... Finally, the thing I really liked was I loved where Nightcrawler says to Mystique, Excuse me. They say you can imitate anybody, even their voice, even their voice. Then why not stay in disguise all the time? You know, look like everyone else. Because we shouldn't have to. Everybody talks about the scene with Iceman where his mother says, if you tried not being a mutant. And that's kind of, that's, that was, that was revelatory at the time, right? Yes, it suddenly, was. Suddenly being a mutant and being gay is the same thing. And that was, that was important. That was important to say in a movie. But we've been around that bush a many million times now. And so it didn't jump out at me this time. But this one did, right? We shouldn't have to. And I thought that was really, that one kind of went past me the first couple of times i saw it but it, right. it, it had a resonance with me this time so yeah that's a great line absolutely all right david something you like well i agree uh with just about everything van said there um i think it did improve on the first movie and i think it really it made a it was a smart choice to kind of uh model the the plot after god love man kills that was the graphic novel by chris claremont that kind of reframed the X-Men franchise as a metaphor for uh, discrimination, right? right? So, uh, of course, and, and 
the original metaphor there was for race relations. So you, you, the Charles uh, Xavier and Magneto had a uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X kind of dynamic, uh, right. and their differences and things like that. So, so th- I think this movie did a really good job of uh, of playing with that and you know showing a world and building on what happened in the first movie, but, but showing a world where you know there's a space for a superhero team that is going to fight to protect the world even though they are hunted and feared and discriminated against. And so um, so the metaphor of what that discrimination represents, um, maybe it's changed over the years, but but maybe not. Maybe it's just in our interpretation, our perception. I think it's I think it's uh, general enough, you know, it's a safe enough metaphor right. that you can plug in any form of discrimination and anybody who's ever felt ostracized for any reason. And of course, you know, that's going to apply to a bunch of uh comic book reading nerds just for you know <laughs> trying to survive yeah. high school. Uh, right. So uh um so I really I really like that they went with um God Love Man Kills and of course the Weapon X stuff. So um what do they get right? I think they absolutely nailed the three most important characters that they needed to get right. Of course this is the sequel so they were already um they weren't go- going from scratch here. But again uh, Professor X, Magneto and Wolverine. Those are the three that have to work if the movie's going to work. Yeah. Right. And, and I think they did it. They nailed it. You know, the actors are incredible. And I think the, the script served them well, you know, they, they had their, they had their right motivations and they had their right challenges. And, um, but I liked all of that. I like Magneto, uh, you know, I, I don't know if sympathetic is the right word, but we understood him enough that, you know, right. there he is working alongside the X-Men and it makes sense, right? So, um, so to to have a villain that is developed well enough as a character that you can bring that nuance to it, and, and you're and you're you're bought in, and you're, and you're right, you know, you're right there with them. So, um, so to me, it, it works completely. And of course, the movie starts out with the Nightcrawler scene in the White House. And, <laughs> And, and I'm just blown back against my seat. I mean, it's so cool. They brought Nightcrawler to life. And uh, Alan Cummings does a great job. The makeup effects were incredible. The teleporting effects with this black cloud, the BAMF sound, right. Right, it was all there. Uh, so I was, now you have to understand, and, and Van knows this about me. Uh, and Van had this, Van and I had this in common, although I think he read more X-Men comics than I did growing up. But, you know, my main comic fandom is Avengers. And, uh, yeah, I grew up at a time when the Avengers were my favorite, but they were even among comic book fans, they were not the cool comic book alike. <laughs> right in the '80s, what was it about? It was all about the X Men, yeah, and it was all about Spider Man. And of course, these movies are coming out, and we're getting awesome X Men movies, and we're getting awesome Spider Man movies, and the Avengers are nowhere to be found. So I love that as a comic book fan, I love that Marvel is putting out quality movies, right? But as an Avengers fan, I'm jealous that it's X Men. <laughs> oh, so jealous. <laughs> Oh, we were dying, man. We were dying. We were like, come on. They've had their day. It's our turn now. <laughs> right. So so I, I, I'm i not bringing all my love to the X-Men. Now, this, for a generation of kids younger than us, this movie was the pinnacle, right? Because, yeah. because the animated series from the early 90s oh, yeah. introduced so many, uh, an entire generation of new readers into the fold. And it's those kids that are now grown up and enjoying these movies. And I'm sure, you know, if you're in that crowd, oh my goodness, you can't get better than this, you know, especially 
when you don't know about the MCU yet. So um, I appreciate it for what it is. But at the time, I was I was so kind of disappointed that it wasn't the Avengers. Why couldn't we get a decent Avengers movie with like, what if you had a movie star as every character and there was this all star jam? Like they could never do that. You can't have solo movies with movie stars and then put them all in one movie. That's that, that's not possible. So the Avengers are too good of a concept to ever make it onto the movie screen, right? So we'll we'll go with the X Men. But um, um, so obviously I'm thrilled with how everything went, but. I'll say this about the X-Men, and I think MCU topped it, but at the time, here's here's the here's the main like about this movie, right. and then I'll shut up. Uh, <laughs> but we got, first of all, we got a team of superheroes, right. right? We got a team, a whole team. I mean, you get to see a whole bunch of folks. And and it's and I think specifically of the action sequence outside the home with the police cars. Right. You've got you've got so many power sets at play at once. Right. That's not easy to do from a fight choreography standpoint and from a writer standpoint to make sure every character is done justice, but also is acting logically. I mean, if you're in that situation, you got a power, you better be using it. So what does a complicated action sequence look like when you've got so many different power sets that need to come into play? And uh, the Magneto's escape from his cell where he's using oh, yeah. the iron out of the guy's blood and then using it to create a pathway to float across. Oh, how awesome is that? <laughs> Between that and then, uh, you know, you've got Magneto, you got Rogue, you got Iceman, you got Pyro, all these guys fighting the police officers at once, Wolverine. Um, so to, to, to see that scene in a movie, I mean, it, it brought these characters to life in a way that a comic book can't do. Like it, uh, it was very cinematic and kinetic and and i think the mcu topped it with both the airport fight in civil war and uh and of course the big the big finale in endgame you know where you just right. <laughs> everywhere. but i mean at the time this is so far beyond anything we had ever seen in a movie right. before so even as a jealous avengers fan uh, i could <laughs> really really get into this movie all right well um yeah uh well put. Uh, the Nightcrawler opening, I, w- I just remember seeing that in the theater and going, holy crap, how are they going to get better than this? Because that was such a great opening. Yeah. Everything about it was right and everything about it was great. Um, and I love that character. And it's just a shame that was like the only the only movie we really got him, you know, so that kind of bummed me out. Um, and uh, of course, the uh, assault in the school is phenomenal as well. You get to really see Logan and the Wolverine, you know, character really come out for the first time. Cause let's be honest in the first movie, he was just totally getting his butt kicked, like against everybody else. It seemed like, um, the, I, I, I love the, and then we've already talked, talked about a little bit, the whole, uh, acceptance and the tolerance and everything. And I think as, um, I just think the, the questions that are brought up in this movie have just grown, um, as we've progressed, I, they're still very relevant. It just includes more people. And I, and I still think it, stays there i don't still think it's appropriate and and i really love that about this movie and uh so yeah it's one of the things i always point to um when i say well it's not just a comic book movie there's something going on underneath the surface if you pay attention so um i really do love that uh so yeah you guys pretty much hit everything else that i like about the movie um it's just so much fun to watch uh and there's a great to think that if Brian Singer had not made at pupil, um, we would have not gotten 
uh, Ian McKellen as Magneto because it was on that uh, uh, the set of that movie where he showed him the helmet that he'd be wearing. And he was like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So if Brian Singer does not make that movie, we don't get Ian McKellen. Um, you know, probably not. So I'm glad you said that. Cause I've always wondered how they ended up with Ian McKellen. I love Ian McKellen. Oh, absolutely. He's amazing. And he, and he does a good job as Magneto, I think. Yes, he does. But he's not who I would have ever cast in the role. Right. I just think he's too old. Yeah. Now, I guess the way they reset it to where he's alive at the beginning, you know, during World War II with the death camps, he kind of had to be older. Right. But but I just, it's not how I ever visualized Magneto. I always thought of Magneto as being about 50, not about 70. So right. I, have a, I have a casting choice. Do you have a casting choice? <laughs> well, I thought Fassbender was great as Magneto in the. Well, in yeah, the, okay. Right. But, <laughs> so, but in 2000 and in 2003, uh, I was, at the time, I was saying Rutger Hauer. Rutger Hauer would have been. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I could have seen that. Yeah. yeah. I could have seen that. But I got, yeah. you know, I've got no complaints with, with what we were given. Right. I do like the helmet. I like the fact that, you know, again, what I was saying before about Spider Man, where they're a little bit embarrassed to go full bore comic book. We don't really get the costumes in this movie, right? The right. black leather looks cool. And it's, but they didn't, they weren't brave enough to embrace all the costumes. Not but, yet. Mag- but Magneto gets his helmet. Right. And um, and I guess they felt the need to ground that in some reality. But I love their justification, right? The helmet protects Magneto from from Cerebro, so right. or, or protects him from Professor X's uh, mental powers against him. Right. So uh, that now maybe that's all over the comics. I haven't read enough to know, but I that can't. was cool to me. That was I thought that yeah. was a good way to use it. No, it is. It still looks stupid. Uh, the the helmet <laughs> in the later movies looks a lot better because in later movies they have it look like the one in the comics. Right. In this one, it I don't know what it is. I just it looks like it's made out of plastic and cost about twenty bucks to make, and it's <laughs> purple. And I just I don't like it. I I like the justification. Yeah, I just think it looks terrible. But they they fixed that later, so that's fine. Yeah, but they still got them to play the part, so I'm okay with how it looks. <laughs> you picked the wrong house. Okay, so uh, Van, uh, which character uh, is most comic book accurate? Um, I think that probably Nightcrawler. The way right. that Alan Cumming plays him is he he hits on his spiritual beliefs. He's got that kind of a combination of shyness, but still being very friendly and engaging when you can talk to him, but still you can tell he's somebody that has been forced into being kind of a recluse, but really doesn't have the personality for it. And so it, it chafes, you know, he gets, he conveys all that very, very well. So that surprised me when I was thinking about this and I was like, you know, I think it was Nightcrawler, honestly, because I mean, every, again, everybody, it's like with Spider-Man, like I said, everybody else in this movie, they're not really, you know, again, they're they're close enough that we know who they are, but they're not right. really the comic book character. But I think Nightcrawler is about as close as you can get. All right, great. I mean, he's, Alan Cumming is wonderful anyway. So yeah, he was he's actually one of my favorite parts of this movie, just because his portrayal and that character. So All just right. just imagine that Nightcrawler in this movie is the same guy that that had the exploding pin and got frozen in Goldeneye. <laughs> I <just> love that. <laughs> I knew you were going there. I, I knew you were going James Bond. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's, it's crazy. That he's the same guy. All right. <laughs> All right, David, how about you? What do you think? Well, uh, I'll give a couple of shout outs before I give my real answer. Um, the uh, uh, I thought Magneto was accurate in terms of his 
uh, personality and his motivations and his relationship to the other characters and all that kind of stuff that I talked about before where you can understand where he's coming from and everything. So I think they got the essence of the character very, very well. I okay. think they captured it very well. Right. Is he comic book accurate? No, because of the costume and the helmet and all that kind of stuff. All right. Maybe, maybe even his age. Um, my real answer, uh, I think Van just turned to me. I think he convinced me. I think Nightcrawler is the right answer. But if, to give a different answer, I would go with Professor X. Um, I think again, his power set and his motivations and his behavior, his personality, and and his look. Right? He, I mean, right? Oh yeah. He's a guy in a suit in a high tech wheelchair. So they they didn't get that wrong. So uh, you know, and Wolverine is another character that is the strength of the movie, and he's a fan favorite. He should be, especially in this movie. He's awesome. But is he comic book accurate? You can't really say that. So um, if I can't pick Nightcrawler, I'll go with Professor X. All right. Yeah. See, I remember when they I heard they were making this. The first name popped in my head was Patrick Stewart as Xavier. I never even oh, yeah, yeah. nobody else came to mind. Yeah, nobody else nobody. came to mind. So um, yeah, that that's that's my choice. I just I mean Patrick Stewart's just awesome. And have him and Ian McKellen on screen together, you know, damn we're lucky. Um so all right. So uh Van, how about a favorite scene? It's gotta be the attack on the mansion. I mean, there's a lot of good scenes in this movie, yeah, but just I remember at the time, because again, you know, as David was saying earlier, kind of we were talking about how we didn't have nearly as much back then as we do now, obviously. Right. And so I remember pouring over frame by frame, like the Zapruder film with this movie going, <laughs> there's Colossus. Oh, that must be Kitty Pride. Oh, there's there's Jubilee. Oh, look, that's you know, and we were just kind of going through and figuring out who they all were. You know, if this movie came out today, I'd be like, I couldn't care less. But back then I was like, <laughs> oh, look, there's all these characters that we've seen in the comics. So yeah, so not only do we get a lot of cameos, and he's able to squeeze in a lot of characters that the script couldn't handle in terms of speaking parts or whatever, but you get to kind of see him running from room to room and being attacked and all and and fighting back. That's pretty clever and a good way to do it. But they also, it's a, it's a good, um, it's just a good scene overall because, you know, you do get that whole the government is out to get the mutants. Right. And they're coming and they're busting in their house, you know, and, you know, the, the black helicopters attacking your house is kind of this conspiratorial thing. And it, it, it just feeds on a lot of fears and a lot of uh, things that people already think about maybe and, and, and does it so well. And it allows Wolverine to kind of be the den mother and protect everybody, you know, and. Um, hey, take him. He's stunned. I can help you help them. There's just so many good things about it. I really, uh, I, I really that that scene, uh, that whole section of the movie does hold up. I think really well. All right, and, and you see Hugh Jackman flex. I mean, he's he's in shape. <laughs> he looks better here than he does in the first movie, right? He's oh yeah, he's, he should. He's, wolf, he's Wolverine unleashed. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely awesome. Uh, my favorite scene. I go back and forth, uh, and I've already mentioned them. Uh, I was just so impressed with the opening scene with Nightcrawler. Um, I think it was done it's done so well and the choreography is you know complex and you're just and if you're if you're if you're just if you're if you're not familiar with the comics you have no idea what's going on and I, I have no idea how that plays for people like that but for me I was I was so impressed for immediately the movie had me hooked just right out of the gate right um and the other one is going to be the um the confrontation with the police out in the front yard Again, because of so many multiple power sets all interacting and, and having to 
have a part in that scene all at the same time. Uh, to me, it was just comic book craziness in the best possible way. Drop the knives and put your hands in the air. What's going on here? Ronnie. I said drop the knives. Open the door. Break it. This is just a misunderstanding. Put the knives down. I can't. You know all those dangerous mutants you hear about on the news? I'm the worst one. All right. Those are my answers. Well, I like to be different because that's just how I'm built. Um, so my actually favorite scene takes place right before the confrontation with the police. Um, I actually adore the scene where Bobby has that conversation with his parents because in my brain, I see that played out in so many different households for so many different reasons, so many different ways. And to me, I think that brings um, a very human element uh, to the story. It uh, connects um, us as, as viewers to the characters. It makes it more real. Um, I think it also gives uh, a lot of people that feel that way um, an avatar to uh, be a part of the movie and feel like they're not um, by themselves or not alone that, you know, or whatever. So um, that's a conversation that a lot of families have. And I think it's done well on the screen. And it also goes along with uh, what you said about um, Mystique and uh, and Nightcrawler. Well, we shouldn't have to. So I absolutely love that. I It, it plays to um, the questions the that come along with the stories. And so I really, really, really enjoy that scene um, because you can see uh, what it's doing to Bobby and you can see what it's doing uh, to, you know, the anger coming out with pyro. You can see how it's affecting everybody um, in that room. So I really like that scene. Pyro yeah. is an interesting case too. We haven't mentioned. I think that I'm, I was really glad again, you know, I'm looking, I'm, I'm in, in 2000, whatever year it came out. Um, we were looking at it as comic fans going, all right, let's see what they did with our thing. Right. <laughs> You, you go back and look at it 20 years later and I, you know, at the time I'm like, okay, Pyro. Yeah. He was kind of interesting. I don't know. And I look at it now and I think, man, what an important character he really represented there because he's the guy that's kind of on the, he's on the tipping point. It could go right. either way. And the, and the way that the events play out are going to decide which way he ultimately goes. And, um, and, uh, yeah, that, uh, that was really, that, that caught me this time way more than it did before. I thought his whole plight yeah, and whether we should be give sympathy for him or be mad at him. Is he a hero? Is he a villain? Is he a victim? I mean, that I, I like when they raise a lot of questions and you have to think about it. And that certainly his character did that more than a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. I, I, well, I think you, uh, sorry. I think you, uh, see, um, his reaction during that scene, you can kind of see that he, uh, he had that same conversation and it didn't go nearly as well as it did with uh with with this one so yeah that, that plays more to his character yeah, yeah I, th I think you're exactly right van and you know he, he played an important uh part of this story in the sense that he he's the um, illustration of the other path you could take like you know he was a peer of bobby drake and uh he just you saw him make a different choice but it made total sense and you didn't think he was evil but you could see how the situation they're in, the world they're living in, and, and the discrimination they're facing. And I love the sly, understated recruitment that Magneto conducts. You know, he's, oh, he's, yeah. you can, you can hey, see totally. him just, 
he's just seducing him over to Working. his side and and without ever making it explicit you know i thought it was very subtle i thought it was very you know who, you know who pyro was in a way he was anakin skywalker yeah. <laughs> yes that's totally a lot of that there oh yeah, yeah. that's exactly yeah. right and and dayton what you were saying about the conversation in the living room just before that action sequence uh, you're right. You know, um, it's easy to fall in love with the action sequences, but if that's all they are, if they don't have an emotional context, yeah. you know, and if you don't have serious themes. And <laughs> they're X-Men 3, but I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, very well put. Well, yeah. Yes, exactly. But, you know, if you don't have those serious themes at play, then the, the movie's not nearly as satisfying right. and it's not nearly as effective. And, um, and, and I think still at this point, uh, the general public, meaning the normal folks that are not reading comic books, who maybe their only impression is still the Batman 66, they are, you know, they can still be surprised that a movie with superheroes in it can have something to say about something so serious. Right. And um, and X-Men are like primed to be able to tackle those types of themes. So uh, so I, I, I loved your answer there. And I, I think it's important that to recognize that uh, th- these movies, you know, can be a vehicle for some important messages. And, you know, that's something Stan Lee figured out 55, 60 years ago. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, and so we love seeing all this stuff really brought to the screen in a, in a good way. But it, and I think it has taken the rest of the world by surprise. And that's why it's super, that's one reason why the superhero movies have been dominating for so long now. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You got to, there's got to be, you know, like I said, there's got to be more to it than just a lot of action sequences. So, and we don't, we don't talk about X3 in my house. I don't even have a copy <laughs> of it. So <laughs> what is this movie of which you speak? Yeah. Right. So uh, Van uh, dislikes. I don't have nearly as many dislikes here. If that's a hint as to where this is going to go in our wrap up. Um, <laughs> I already know. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I already mentioned the whole thing where I wasn't in love with Ian McKellen in this role. I love Ian McKellen and I love this role. I'm not sure I don't, I like, I'm sure, not sure I like the two of them together. That's okay. He's, he's fine. Um, I, I don't love how the X-Men are different ages in these movies. And again, that's a nitpick to do with comics fans, but you know, in the comics, they're different ages, but in the movies, they're different characters that are at different ages. And so having Iceman be like, 16 or whatever and Wolverine be like 40 is, you know, Iceman was one of the founders. It's just never sat right with me that he's that young, even though I think that, the, that, um, what's his name? The, the kid that plays him does a great job. And I really like the character. Yeah. He's, he's one of my favorite characters in the movies in those early movies. Uh, but that just always kind of annoyed me. Um, and, um, but I think the main thing that I really don't like is I've just, I've noticed the older I get, the less I like Wolverine and particularly his weapon. I I like the fact that the movies really have done a lot with his healing factor as his major power. Right. That the movies really always have kind of emphasized that because it's a cool visual power. But for the comics, they used to barely, I mean, the earliest X-Men comics with him in them didn't make that much out of his healing power. It wasn't this magical instant heal thing. It was just he healed faster, you know. Right. And so it was the claws. It was the adamantium bones and the claws. Right. And honestly, it is harder and harder for me to accept as cool superpowers 
that you're running around with six steak knives jabbing into people. That to me is not a superpower. It's a psychopath with lots of extra ammunition. I just, I don't, it's why I don't like the movie Logan. Oh, it's, I love that movie. It's, I, I know everybody loves that movie, but me, but if you watch that movie, Logan, it's just Hugh Jackman going around stabbing people for two hours. And Freddy I, Kruger. yes, <laughs> yes. There's not a lot of difference to me between Wolverine and Freddy Krueger. And I don't like that because that's, I mean, he's an interesting character, but I just don't want to see him. It's like, it's hard for them to figure out how for him to fight somebody and not kill them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, you have to find a way, like even swordsman would hit you with the flat of the blade and or black Knight when hit you with the flat of the blade and knock you out. Wolverine doesn't hit you with the flat of the claw. He just stabs you in the head and the chest and you die. And I just, that a little of that goes a long way. And mutilation man is not my kind of superhero. <laughs> I just, it's just not. So, you know, right. again, good character, but I just don't need him chop anymore. I, that's you know, right. after kill bill. I'm done with, done with that. Hey, let's not speak ill of Kill Bill. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I love okay. it. I'm just saying it. I, I got all the dismemberments in that movie I need for the rest of my life. Uh, so. all, right, all right. That's fair. That's fair. All right. All right, David. Well, first of all, I feel like I got to defend Wolverine a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, I'm Go a ahead. jealous Avengers fan, so I don't care. I used to make fun of X-Men fans because Wolverine's only superpower is that he could get beat up a lot, right? That's yeah. his power. <laughs> He, yeah. you could, he just he knows he's going to get beat up, so he better have a healing pad. But um, obviously, he's a fan favorite, has been for a long time. And certainly at the time these movies were coming out, they had to get this one right. Right. And and from the from the, the first movie, uh, the first X-Men movie in 2000, the first time you see him, you know, he's in Canada. He's got the cigar and the fur coat and the hair. And it's just like, oh, the, from the first moment you see him on screen, you're like, that's it. That's Logan. They Boom. We're good. You know, we're good to go. Um, so I, I understand what you're saying about the claws. That's a, that's a writer's challenge. How do you make a hero out of a slasher? Um, yeah. and, um, maybe that's one reason I've never, you know, fully, uh, embraced the character myself, but I do recognize that, uh, that he's a cool character. He's got tons of fans and he, they needed to get him right in this movie and, and they did. Um, right. what, uh, what I did not, there was something a major dislike of this movie that directly involves Wolverine. And that is the terrible, uh, well, the constantly changing hairstyles and terrible wig that Hugh Jackman had to wear for the reshoots. Uh, <laughs> you can tell where he's got his real hair and where he's got his fake hair. Cause they, and, and, and sometimes it's within the same scene, but I was wondering between. about that. How it <laughs> I, I yeah. did notice that. I'm like, what's going on with his hair? Well, what had happened was, they had wrapped production and he had started growing his hair out for uh, Van Helsing. And, uh, and then Brian Singer brought him back for reshoots and they had to fit him with a wig. So when you see that little too perfect of a hair piece with the points and the yeah, button yeah. chops, you know, it looks, you could tell yeah. how stupid it looks compared to his natural look. Um, so, and it's very distracting to me. Like I can't not see it. Um, <laughs> So well, I, I can't either. So yeah, now I'm gonna see it. Thanks. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I used to say that uh, I didn't like the fact that we didn't get the costumes. You know, like come on, you chicken. Just that we do. The comics are proven to be yeah. cool. All the kids who grew up with the animated series are used to seeing them in their costumes. Sure. Just give us the costumes, you know. Um, so, and I wish they'd been brave enough to do it. 
But, you know, the black leather uniform for everybody, it looks cool. It works for the color palette of this movie and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Very and dark, very dark color palette of this movie. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's a very dark, it's a very dark mood. I mean, the whole movie yeah, yeah. really is very dark. It is. It's all black, blue, and silver. And, yeah. and would it really have been better with the costumes? You know, I kind of think actually that it wouldn't, as much as I would love to champion comic book accuracy. Um, so, but another major dislike. And this this is kind of similar to the lack of chemistry between uh, Toby Maguire and Kirsten Dunst is James Marston. I it was just absolutely not impressed with that dude, and clearly Jean Grey was not either. And I don't blame her. Uh, like I, I like how did Wolverine lose out to that guy? I mean that's impossible. Maybe yeah. you know maybe Jean Grey had to make the choice the day he was wearing the the bad hairpiece. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's good no i i i i'm gonna pile onto the james martz I, I like him um i just him as cyclops was it just did not work for me the way he was played i just i did not like it and it's probably my biggest complaint with this movie is just i every scene with him it's just kind of it's um it's cringeworthy anyway it just because i just i'm looking at you know cyclops going you are so whiny you're supposed to be a leader of this team and you're so friggin' whiny Let's move on. Which movie gets the characters the most comic book accurate? Like on a whole, if you're, you know, is it the Spider-Man characters? I know, I'm pretty sure I know what Van's answer is going to be after, uh, you know, (laughs) his comments earlier, but which one uh, gets it most right? I mean, we've already said that neither one of them doesn't really uh, truly accurate, but who gets it most right? Van, which one is it? You know, I, I put down on my, little notes here that I thought that probably the Spider-Man movie, just because there are a lot more chances in the X-Men movie to get them wrong. You know, you've got so many more characters in the X-Men movie that there's just that many more times you can go. Now that's not quite right. So (laughs) neither one of them really does. I mean, but Nightcrawler is probably the most accurate in either movie. So, um, but other than that, I'm going to go Spider-Man. All right. All right. David? So I looked at this question a little bit differently. And instead of trying to decide, like, on an individual basis, this character is comic accurate, this one is, this one is, this one is, which movie has more of them? Um, what, I, what I looked at is more, what's, which one's more comic accurate in terms of giving us a Spider-Man story versus an X-Men story? Right. Which, which movie was more accurate in delivering that type of story that we expect from those series? And that's tough because, um, because I mean, they just went for the jugular with God loves man kills, right? They just absolutely nail the whole dis- discrimination and persecution metaphor that the X that Chris Claremont gave the X Men, and then that's what turned them into a, a winning franchise, right? They were they were nothing much to speak of before Claremont gave it that reinvention, um, and then uh, and then Spider Man, so with um, just the dynamic between Peter, MJ, and J. Jonah Jameson, and Aunt May, and all those things. And, you know, the, the Parker luck, and the, just the science gone bad, and just the, just the looks, you know, the, the, giving you those classic stories. And I, I go with Spider-Man. Yeah. I think, uh, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying right now that it's, it's, it's my favorite movie between these two, but in terms of nailing the overall dynamic, and tone and vibe of 
what I expect a classic story featuring those characters to be. I think Spider-Man gets the edge. Cool. All right. Um, so which movie has the better action sequences? What do you think, Van? I put some thought into this actually, because I, th- I think I'm, maybe I'll surprise you. I don't know. They both are, they both have great stuff, right? We know that. Right. But I think the answer is clearly Spider-Man two. And the reason I say that is because while when we think about X two, we think about a bunch of X bunch of action scenes. If you really go back and watch that movie and watch the action scenes closely, they're not as big as they seem. I think that Brian Singer does a remarkable job of giving us the illusion that there are a lot of big giant set piece battles in that movie. And there really aren't everything that happens in it. Action wise to me seemed smaller. It was like a, an element of like, like the battle in the mansion is actually just a set of scenes of like Wolverine tackling somebody or somebody falling through a wall. There's not like a scene of 50 soldiers and 50 superheroes clashing in like a George Perez panel. You never get that, right? It's just little individual things. And like, you know, if Storm does some big thing, you just see her with her eyes white and then there's some lightning. But, <laughs> you know, there's never like Storm swooping in and zapping. You know what I mean? He's, I think Singer does a really good job of making you think you're seeing big battles that you're actually not seeing on the screen. And I give him credit for that because it saved probably a whole lot of money. (laughs) This is a movie that could have cost $300 million and they made it for, I don't know how much, but probably a lot less than that. Oh yeah. Whereas the Spider-Man movie, every single fight, you get a hundred percent of it on the screen. It is all right up there. Spidey and Doc Ock tumbling and smashing and throwing and the train and the, this and the building and the bricks and all every, sorry, every single little crazy. Every little, every little action thing that happens in Spider-Man Two, you see it. You see it in living color. Every big action thing that happens next to you, kind of have to interpolate it and imagine it based on what you're seeing. And that's, I think, that's a difference. All right, all right. Am I crazy, or does you, if y'all, if y'all did y'all notice that? Oh well, I, no, I actually, I do see, I do see your point. I, I don't necessarily agree, but I see your point. <laughs> it's, it's not my answer, David. What's your, what's your answer? Well, I'm going to be brave enough to stick with my answer of X2, although I think Van kind of destroyed my thoughts on it all. Just then. <laughs> but uh, but, I, but but Van, I don't think you're wrong. I think Brian Singer employed a lot of really good cinematic tricks to give us yeah, yeah. give us something that you know without actually giving it to us. So uh, so I, I, I you know I'll, I'll watch it again with that in mind, I, and I'm sure that. I'll agree with you on that. Um, the thing about Spider-Man is the sequence. Yeah, they're bigger, so to speak. You know, they're they're jumping between skyscrapers, and there's the train going through the whole city, and all this kind of stuff. There's also it. There's also long lags of no action scenes in this movie where they're just so focused on Peter and Mary Jane and, and Mary Jane and all those things that are going wrong. And uh, while the while the action's awesome, uh, I haven't sat down and tried to count it. But my impression is that there's a lot fewer of them. There's a lot where the action they have is good. There's not as many set pieces as there is, there is in X2. And with X2, I am enraptured by the fact that there's so many super powered heroes all at once. And it's not just a solo Spider-Man movie. Of course, 
I'm coming at it with an Avengers bias. You know, I want to see super teams <laughs> in action, right? So we get a team. And so we get Nightcrawler, we get the mansion siege, we get Magneto's escape, we get the police confrontation in the front yard. We get all this, we get all this stuff with Striker and Lady Deathstrike, and uh, and then the stuff at the end with the airplane and the tornadoes and all this kind of stuff. So uh to me, it was a lot more action in X2. And I think just cumulatively, I have to go with X-Men. I came away feeling like it was more of an action movie where um where Spider-Man had these long lags of having to watch Tobey Maguire and Curse and Dumps try to act together. I don't, so, I won't argue with that. We've already <laughs> done that. <laughs> the first 25 minutes of Spider-Man two is pull your hair out. Ugh. Yeah. And actually that's exactly my, my, my feeling too. Um, Cause I remember going into this, my brain was going to automatically go, Oh, Spider-Man two has the, has the better action. But the last, I just watched them both recently. And um, the, like, like David said, there's chunks of time where I'm just kind of like, yeah, we're, we're telling a story. Okay. Uh, when's doc showing up again? You know, it, it was, um, and when they were there, they're really good. They're entertaining to watch, but I really enjoy every action sequence. Um, no matter how small they might be, uh, in, in X2, I, I'm just more engaged with those they are more interesting to me. And I really, you know, I really love those. So those are the ones. So X2 is the one that jumps out at me and I would much rather watch those sequences. Like just the Nightcrawler alone is just so good that none of the scenes in, um, in Spider-Man 2 win me over versus that one. So I'm, I'm picking uh, X2, but I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Van. You're absolutely right. I think it's just how Brian Singer put them together. Uh, They're, they are truly smaller, but to me, they're more fun and entertaining to watch. So. Yeah, it's a that, credit to him for doing such a great job. Yeah, yeah. This is back when he still knew how to make movies. Um, <laughs> it seems like so many directors hit that point where they just kind of forget what they're doing. Okay, which movie has an overall better story? Van, what do you think? I think that the Spider-Man movie has a good story at its base and then tries really hard, as we've been discussing, to mess it up. <laughs> but ultimately the story succeeds despite itself. Okay. Despite the lack of chemistry that we talked about, despite, despite the unnecessary tropes that we talked about, despite the long dull spells that we talked about it. This is a movie that tries to sabotage itself, but manages to wedge in enough Sam Raimi to keep the lights on and keep things percolating and eventually tells the story it's trying to tell. I thought the X-Men movie, again, it's Brian's. The more I've seen this movie, the more I'm impressed with Brian Singer because he's like a magician with this movie. He conjures up the sense that you've seen giant superhero battles when you really haven't. You just have intended <laughs> at them. And he conjures up the sense that you've seen this really deep and profound story when you really haven't. There's barely a story to X-Men 2. It's a series of confrontations and a chase. And and a confrontation at the end, there's not a lot of plot to it. I mean, you could, you yeah. could summarize, I was thinking you could summarize this movie in like a sentence or two, or you couldn't because there's not, I mean, <laughs> how would you just, how would you describe the plot of X-Men two? I really don't know. You'd say uh striker tries to eliminate mutants and Wolverine tries to go home. And I don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> so, 
I just don't think I again, and yet it's a really good movie. That's what I'm right. saying. I think Brian Singer is able to make us think, whoa, what a great story until you actually think, but what was that story? So, well, again, well done, Brian Singer, for <laughs> pulling the wool over our eyes twice. So, all right. I, I hey. think Spider Man wins. All right, and David. I, I was going to say that. I never would have thought I was going to say that. <laughs> This is all from me watching in the last two days. I watched, I watched uh, X Men two two days ago, and I watched Spider Man two yesterday. And both times, I was just watching them, going, "Wow, I'm seeing things I never really, you know, perceived." Right. before. it was really interesting, yeah, because it's been years. <laughs> well, with apologies to D Graves and Jason Colvin, Van Shirley, you can't be serious. <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> Spider-Man is a movie about a scientist who had a bad day and uh, and Tobey Maguire, who uh, is not man enough to tell Kirsten Dunst how he feels. 100%. I agree with okay. you 100%. 100%. So X-Men paints the world, gives us a cinematic universe of where uh, these heroes are having to defend a world that hates and fears them. And they that's play the with setting. That. That's not the plot, though. I, I understand, but but there is a plot, and it's full of action and not boring, like <laughs> like blank expressions <laughs> with with actors with bad backs. Again, not arguing with that at all. Hundred percent, hundred percent with you. And so, in in the middle of these action scenes, you are dealing with themes of discrimination and persecution that give it a deeper context. And so that part's cool. And then you get Wolverine searching for his origins. So yeah, Wolverine tries to go home. That sounds flip, but it's actually cool. Wolverine's trying to find out his origins. What happened to him? He's getting flashbacks of this Weapon X program. He can't make sense of it all. And he has to go confront the guy who made him. And so uh, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, 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 and it would agree. take two more movies coming along to still try to answer that question. <laughs> right. But which movie is the better story? I am going with X-Men seven days a week. <laughs> you described setting and theme. I understand. Never really described the plot. That's why that's all I'm saying. All right. Um, <laughs> This is great. This is <laughs> so excited about this. This is so good. Um, okay, so uh, I'm actually going to um, agree with Van. Uh, I struggled a lot with this, um, and I, as much as I I love X X Men United, and as much as I love the themes involved, it is a very thin story. I I like um, Peter's um, his issues. I love how he's dealing with it you know, who he is and what he's supposed to do. He's, he's dealing with making decisions. He's dealing with, um, like I said before, most of us just have to deal with our personal life and our work, you know, work life and finding the balance. He's trying to find a balance between work life, personal life and being a superhero. Um, but we can still relate to making those decisions and, and having the struggles. So to me, um, whereas there's so many things going on, there's great, parts and scenes in X2, I think the overall story that's more accessible um, is in Spider-Man 2. Even though there are some dull scenes or are some, there's some lagging, I think overall the story is just, just a little bit better. And it was hard for me to come to that decision because X2 is so much, there's so much fun to watch, but it's not 
not story. Anyway, if I, if I could say this, so yes, I, my my comic fandom is mainly Avengers. Uh, I was never I was never an X Men reader at all, and only read a little bit of Spider Man. But what I can what I can say is that what you're saying about Sp- Spider Man's story there and and the more intimate scale of the story, right? It's more of a personal story for right. Peter Parker. That is the appeal of the character, and that is the appeal of the comic book. And so the all the great Spider Man stories that Spider Man fans love. They are these smaller scale stories about Peter's struggle just in this kind of crazy superpowered world. And I'm coming at it from like, you know, an Avengers fandom, you know, and it's like, oh, oh, there's this classic issue by Roger Stern where Spider-Man faces the juggernaut. And I read this issue and it's just Spider-Man and juggernaut. And, the <laughs> <of page. laughs> and it's like, well, you want to talk about the Korvac saga? You know, you want to talk about. You know, you know what I'm saying? You want to talk about Thanos? You want to talk about uh, the Creed Scroll War? I mean, there's so it's much different. more that can fit onto a comic book page than, yeah. what, than what you're flipping out over with Spider-Man. It's so, a different thing. So as much as I was praising that Lee Ditko vibe, and I do like it when they can really capture that, um, those aren't the stories that appeal to me. I want the bigger cast and I want the bigger scale conflicts. And so, so in a world where there are no Avenger movies... The X Men movie <laughs> hits me in the bullseye a little bit better. All right. Um, now, with all of that said, if I'm just going to give a quick random shout out to the um, to the spectacular Spider Man animated series that ran uh, around 2010, 2011, something like that. That was a great uh, example of taking the Lee Ditko dynamic and Lee, Lee Ditko flavor and updating it for the 2000s and um, it's in so in this favorite Spider-Man cartoon. If you if you want to see something like that, it they they nail it. So check yeah, it out. Man. But there was no Iceman, Firestar, and Ms. Lion, so I got to give it a demerit for that. <laughs> well, yeah, no Miss Lion. Well, okay, all right. Um, I have not seen that series, but I do. I definitely want to check it out. Okay, so um, final question: Which movie do you prefer? But which is a actual better movie? Van, what do you think? All right, this is where I zig and zag and blow your minds, right? All right, go right I, ahead. <laughs> I easily prefer X-Men 2, X-Men, you know, because for a lot of the reasons that David was just touching on, he and I are very much the same on that, that I've I've always appreciated Spider-Man for what he offers to people that like what he offers, I guess. <laughs> But it does not appeal to me at all. As I said earlier, I'm a Tony Stark guy, not a Peter Parker guy. Right. All right. And um, so I have no sympathy for Peter. I just, don't. <laughs> I just don't. I just don't. I just don't. So the X-Men 2 movie, even though it doesn't have a lot of plot, it is absolutely, as you guys said, it's a roller coaster of a lot of fun to watch. And right. the, the issues that we've talked about are largely trivial. And you get past them and you just have a good time with it. And certainly back then we had a great time with it. We thought it was, oh, yeah. it was there was a, probably a moment there when it was the best superhero movie ever made for five minutes. Right. Right. <laughs> Longer for not 10 minutes. Yeah. So now the thing that's interesting to me about that though, is that I only just add this is that I think the bar has always been a lot lower for X-Men movies than for Spider-Man. And here's why. When X-Men movies come out, I would put them on about the same level of event and expectation box office wise as Star Trek movies. They're big, 
Right. People talk about them for a few weeks and they go away. And then a couple of years later, there's another one and they make, you know, a few hundred million dollars and people are happy and they go away. A Spider-Man movie was more like a Star Wars movie almost. It's going to have to make a billion dollars. It's going to be the biggest movie of the summer. It's going to be a big thing. So I just think the bar is a lot higher for Spider-Man movies than the bar is for X-Men movies, which seems weird. You know, it's it's odd. I think it's just because Fox did the X-Men movies, didn't do them as huge events like the Avengers movies or like the Spider-Man movies with Sony and Marvel. They just... I don't think that Fox ever had the confidence in the property to promote it and put it to the level it could have been at. Right. They've always gone cheap with it. They've gone better than we could have expected in 2000, but they've never gone with it the way that the Avengers movies, for example, have. Right. They never have. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what Disney and Marvel are going to do when they finally do bring it back, which is inevitable in the next 10 years, right? Oh, so, yeah. Uh, agreed. I'm, uh, I'm excited so I, about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I just think because the bar being where it is, the X-Men had a lot easier hurdle to get over, and they did. And with the Spider-Man movie, you're like, eh, there was this wrong with it, and there was that. So, yeah, I enjoyed X-Men 2 better. All right. How about you, David? Well, first of all, I'll take a second to just you know, speak to the importance of these two movies collectively and the legacy, you know, yes. um, they, they played a huge part in steering Hollywood towards superheroes and they played a huge part in the mainstream audience embracing these types of stories and these types of characters. And, um, you know, the reason Fox and Sony were making these movies is because Marvel what, had been in bankruptcy and right. they needed to raise funds. And so the way they did that one part of their strategy was to sell the film rights to their biggest properties. And so X-Men and Spider-Man were the biggest. Right. Right. And so that's why that's why Fox didn't do the Avengers. That's right. That's why we didn't get Avengers movies because they we were not the top sellers. Right. So, but in the end, of course, the Avengers fans win, right? Because the, the technology improves, Marvel takes control of the filmmaking and all that kind of stuff. So it's a big win. But at the time, it was like, oh, we're getting X-Men and Spidey because that's the best Marvel had to offer to just get themselves out of bankruptcy. Well, right. it worked like, you know, it's a huge hit, but it not only steered Hollywood toward, toward uh, superheroes, but it opened the door for there to be a Marvel studios for, for Marvel to take the production in house and not just sell out license rights. So um, if they, if these movies hadn't hit, then we would probably have never gotten the MCU, at least not to the scale that we did get it. And um, in these two movies, are the best in their respective trilogies and I'm sure are the biggest hits. And so anybody who's a fan of Marvel movies and MCU owes a huge debt to both of these films. Um, which ones, which one's my favorite? That's easy. I like X-Men 2 better. It's just more of an exciting, enjoyable watch for me. The lags in Spider-Man 2 kill me. But, it was uh, kind of a chore this time. I admit it was kind of a chore to get through part of Spider-Man two this time. And I was shocked by that because I remembered it as a great, great movie. Yeah. It was a huge hit. It was a monster hit. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say my favorite is X two, which one's the better movie. That's a little tougher for me to answer because um, I, I see flaws in the pacing and the acting really in, right. in Spider-Man and, uh, and in X-Men, you know, you're talking about, Van, the flaws of the movie are kind of covered up by a skillful filmmaker. 
You know, so is that is that a pro or a con for how well it's made? You know, you got a good director that's doing the pulling these things off, but he's also having to pull it off. He also has to. <laughs> so so, you know, where does where do you land on that? So um, that's a tougher call for me, but I'm just going to stick with X2 for, for, for that. All right. See, I remember like you, Van, I remember uh, remembering how awesome Superman 2 was. And on this viewing, you know, I was, it was kind of a struggle to get through it again. And um, I, and I went and watched X2 like the next night. And I was like, this is so much more fun to watch. And neither one of these movies are perfect. They both have issues. Um, I will, if I have my choice, I will pick X2 all day long. I will, you know, I says, Hey, which one do you want to watch? It's going to be X2. Um, and I, for the longest time thought Spider-Man two was a better made movie, but it's, there's just, I think there's just too many issues. I think overall, um, Brian Singer gives us a better made product. Cause there's, le- I have less complaints about that movie than I do about Spider-Man two. And about 10 years ago, I probably would have had a different answer. Um, but on watching these recently, um, I'm going X2. I prefer an X2, I think is ultimately a better movie by a hair. So, and I, like I said, never would have thought that 10 years ago. Yeah. All right. Any final words before we say goodbye? Well, I have a final word. I think about the movies is just that, and I think you guys are exactly right about them. I don't disagree with hardly anything. Um, I think that these are movies that just show how rapidly superhero movies have evolved. Yeah. Because 20 years ago, these were state of the art and we wouldn't have had any complaints. And now through the, through the lens that we look at them now, we can see those problems. And so I think a lot of this is just contextual with, we've had a lot more movies since then. And these are kind of the foundation a lot it's based on us, as you guys have said. And so um, I don't think we're hating on them. I think we're, and we're just uh, recognizing stuff that becomes more apparent as time goes by and as you see other things. So to be fair. No, I agree. I, yeah. These were the benchmark. I mean, you know, I remember seeing Superman 78 when I was a kid, you know, I got to see it in the theater and um, how awesome it was. And then I remember seeing Superman two and thinking, man, that was great. Now I watched Superman two. I haven't seen the Donner cut, but I watched Superman two and I'm thinking, this is not good movie at all. And, and so yeah, at the time, these were these were the best we were getting out of Hollywood when it came to comic book movies. And since then, they've just gotten better, you know, and then they're pushing the envelope and they're getting more creative. So yeah, to today's eyes, they don't, there's there's flaws. They still hold up. They're still entertaining. I mean, I'm not going to knock them, but yeah, they've, the product has gotten better. So yeah, I see your point. I'm, and we would not be here without that. So I completely agree with you there. All right. Well, uh, David, thank you for stopping by. I appreciate it. Awesome. I had a blast. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be able to talk about the stuff I love. Right. And, uh, and always, and as always disagree with Van. So it was, uh, <laughs> it's a, we're, we're right on about brand. Something other than college football for a change. <laughs> <laughs> Go dogs. <laughs> no fighting. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> all right, Van, thank you for stopping by. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Oh, this was so much fun. So much fun. Yeah. You guys are great. And uh, I'm so glad that you asked. Yeah. I had to have, have you guys back on the white rocket show sometime. We'll find a topic that we, we all three want to talk about there. Oh, sounds awesome. I will definitely be a part of that. I want to thank the, thank the listeners for stopping by and listen to what a bunch of people have to say about comic book movies and the such. And listeners do us a favor. 
please uh, like, follow, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. Uh, Five-star reviews help us out a lot. Um, If you want to help us out in other ways, you can go to Patreon. And for as little as $1 a month, you can help out for the cost of this podcast. And interact with us on social media. On Twitter at DocuBase77Pod. On Facebook at DocuBase77Podcast. And you can send us an email at DocuBase77Podcast at gmail.com. Do yourself a favor. Watch more movies. And when it comes to watching movies, physical media is better than streaming. The Docking Bay 77 podcast is produced and edited by Dayton Johnson, recorded with Rode Pod mics, the Zoom Pod Track P4, and edited on Audacity. Opening music provided by Eric Jason Brock. You can find him on YouTube and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening.